This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, executive editor. My guest today is David Price Jones. David has been writing for the new Criterion since 1986. His contribution to our September 2017 issue, Milos Among the Ruins, is a review of Andrei Franicek's new biography of Czeslaw Milos, the Polish poet, writer, and diplomat, winner of the 1980 Nobel Prize in Literature, who died in 2004 at age 93. It is also David's 56th essay for the magazine. David, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, I understand you arrive in New York in the traditional fashion by transatlantic crossing on the QM2. How was your passage? It was extremely easy, and we went over the wreck of the Titanic without noticing it. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Many iceberg jokes, I'm sure. I'm afraid there were. (laughs) It seems such a passage is appropriate for the subject of Milos, born in Lithuania in 1911, who crossed over many lines in his long life, both in geography and in politics. Now, I'm delighted you are here to read from Milos Among the Ruins. Your excerpt begins with Milos as an ambitious young poet in Warsaw in in the 1930s, having already spent time among the intellectuals of Paris. And once again, this is David Price Jones reading from Milos Among the Ruins from the September 2017 issue of The New Criterion. In the years before the war, Milos was a communist fellow traveler, like many another, known by anti-communists as a popuchik, an insulting term for someone doing Soviet bidding unasked, whatever it might be. According to Marxist ideology, history, and therefore progress, is determined by something known as dialectical materialism. And like many another fellow traveller, Milos seems to have tried hard to extract intelligible meaning from this abstraction. Enlightened dictatorship was meanwhile supposed to lead people, even against their will, to a wonderful tomorrow. Holding this ideal at bay was Polish nationalism, Vilnius's regular anti-Semitic rioting and unwanted class distinctions, altogether a lot of nonsense, Milos's favourite word of dismissal. Hitler's invasion of Poland, Milos later admitted, freed us from the self-reassuring lies, illusions, subterfuges. As a result of the German blitzkrieg, though, he was forced into the first of several mortally dangerous escapes. Flight from Warsaw on the one available road took him away into Romania and the Soviet Union. Crossing a border on one occasion, he had to eat his Lithuanian passport because its dates did not match those on other documents. On another occasion, a Gestapo officer slapped his face. In Native Realm, his autobiography, he describes the dramatic moment in June 1940, when he was sitting in a cafe in Vilnius and heard the sudden heavy scrape of metal on the pavement. He then watched large dusty tanks with their little turrets from which Soviet officers waved amicably. The Germans were in Warsaw, the Soviets in Vilnius. The trap had closed and there was no way out. Positions had to be taken in the face of evident and continuous Nazi atrocities. Polish intellectuals, almost to a man, resisted the Germans, and many paid for it with their lives. 
Milos drew the line at participating in sabotage and propaganda, partly because he felt that such activities were playing irresponsibly with other people's lives, and partly because his sense of destiny was so strong. A Catholic priest who knew Milos in the war has recorded him arguing with great conviction that his duty was to write, not to fight. The possible loss of his life would be of no use, but his writing was very important to the country. Afterwards, among critics who accused him of pacifism and lack of nationalism was Zbigniew Herbert, a one-time volunteer in the Polish Home Army, and at least his equal as a poet. One day Milos happened to see a couple with a pram walking near his house when the Gestapo arrived, arrested the man, and shot dead the accompanying Jewish woman as she ran down the street crying, No, no, no! Or again, it was a beautiful quiet night in 1943 when the Warsaw Ghetto rose in revolt, and standing on the balcony of their house, he and Janka had goosebumps hearing the screams of thousands of Jews being murdered. In August the following year, the two of them were walking to a tram stop. Just as machine gun fire suddenly marked the start of the Warsaw Uprising, one of the bravest but most costly epics of the war. Unable to return home, as the fighting became more and more intense, they hid in various buildings as best they could. The Germans then caught and interned them in a collecting centre from which they were certain to be deported. Jeslav smuggled out an appeal for help and recalls in Native Realm that a majestic nun rescued them by pretending to be an aunt. I had never met her before, and I never met her again, nor did I ever know her name. The Sovietization of Poland was bound to be fraught with moral choices that would lead either to reward or to punishment, possibly a concentration camp and death. Milos himself was to observe, All I wanted was to get out and see what would happen next, accepting that this amounted to making a pact with the devil. To another Polish writer, Melchior Vankowicz, who questioned motives and morality, he was candid. You ask whether I believed or not, not in Stalinism, but of course I believed. I am definitely and irrevocably against this new faith. It is a great threat to humanity, because dialectical materialism is a lie. Milos defected to the West in 1951, the same year that Guy Burgess and Donald MacLean defected to Moscow. In the opinion of the general public, a more or less unknown Polish poet and two pillars of the British establishment embodied the overriding question of that early Cold War period. In the light of communism, as practiced by the commissars and the Red Army, why did some people refuse to have anything to do with it, while others believed in it, no matter what the evidence? Usually writing out of personal experience of the totalitarian phenomenon, Raymond Aron, Hannah Arendt, Victor Serge, Gustav Herling, Primo Levi, Arthur Kersler, have left a literature special to the 20th century. Czeslav Milos is also of that elite company. Published in 1954, The Captive Mind is partly a memoir and partly an inquiry into behaviour conditioned by communism.
The party has the power to do as it likes, and every individual must make of that whatever he can. To protect identity, Milos gives lightly fictionalised sketches of friends and colleagues who have accommodated all the wise and wherefores of communism. Rationalisation of morality becomes a matter of course. Communist ideology found the way to present bad character traits, such as ambition, greed, lust for power, as positive, and hypocrisy was therefore a virtue. By the time I met him at a conference in Budapest in 1989, as the Soviet bloc was falling apart, he had become a grand old man, handsome, upright, and well-dressed, just as he might have looked if he'd spent his life at Setiny, where the Tsar was on the throne. The egregious Susan Sontag and a gaggle of British lefties did not like it that I spoke against socialism. One of them said, in true Popuchik style, that the Soviet Union may have had Stalin, but Britain had Mrs. Thatcher. Milos crossed the room and said to me loudly enough for others to hear, I have nothing but contempt for these people. The last thing Milos wrote was a request to Pope John Paul II. In the last few years I wrote poems in which I consciously adhered to Catholic orthodoxy, but I am not sure whether I was successful in achieving that. I therefore ask for your words confirming my pursuit of our common goal. The Pope replied, I am happy to confirm your words about our pursuing a common goal. It may serve as Milos's message to posterity. Having returned to Krakow, he died there in 2004. By then, an American citizen. Thank you, David. On the death of Milos in 2004, this is what Hilton Kramer wrote in the October issue of the New Criterion of that year. Among the many enduring literary monuments that have been left to us in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the demise of the international communist movement, and the end of the Cold War, none has proven to be more profound in its comprehension of the evil character of Soviet power than Cheslov Milos's captive mind. He was not only a writer of multiple achievements, but also a prophet of liberation for whom the individual exercise of disabused memory came to constitute a spiritual vocation. David, when and how did you become aware of this prophet of liberation? I was always interested in the longevity of the Soviet Union. I, I'm afraid I thought it would go on, and I wondered how to stop it. And there were people like Bernard Levin and Malcolm Muggeridge, and of course later Vladimir Bukovsky and some Russian dissidents, who said it was bound to stop. So I, had, I must have read The Captive Mind pretty soon after it came out, in a, probably at the end of the 50s or in the 60s, early 60s. And one of the writers that he um, uh, records, that he writes about, a bit of fantasy, a bit of invention, um, was um, the man who wrote The Sweat of the Gas, ladies and gentlemen. And I was fascinated by the insights that they offered. The, that was the way to find out about the Soviet Union. 
for English-speaking readers, at least, Milos has not benefited from having the most straightforward name. To our listeners, Milos is spelled M-I-L-O-S-Z for those on Google. What has been Milos's English language reputation? I gather the Susan Sontags of the world were not his fans. No, he was not a leftist. He 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 taught Polish literature at Berkeley in in California, and um, I think he probably made most impact as somebody introducing classical Polish literature and poetry. To because we don't know much about that, and Polish is not a language everybody's familiar with. And he probably became more of a professor than a poet to the public. But this biography tells you what he was like as a poet and is a wonderful tribute to his spiritual side of the man. He's always looking. He was writing as a Catholic, and he's always looking for human examples of faith and worship. He's a, he's a great poet. If we were to select one book to read by Milos, uh, what would it be? Would it be The Captive Mind? Well, I suppose that is, uh, that's a classic for all time. But Native Realm is, a, again, a wonderful autobiography, which tells you um, a great deal um, from which I've borrowed. I'm going to read from Consciousness, which is from uh, Unattainable Earth, 19... 86, translated by Milos and Robert Haas. And this also appears in Hilton's article from 2004. I think that I am here on this earth to present a report on it, but to whom I don't know. As if I were sent so that whatever takes place has meaning because it changes into memory. I'm James Pinero, and you've been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com. My guest is David Price-Jones, whose own memoir, Fault Lines, was published by Criterion Books in 2015. And I hope you don't mind if I make a little plug for your book. Very the, good of you. Thank you. In the Times Literary Supplement, Ann Wilson describes Fault Lines as affectionate, elegiac, at times tragic. In The Spectator, Charles Moore calls Fault Lines a brilliant description of illusion, neurosis, high culture, sexual ambivalence, the destructive power of money, and the effect of persecution and war. David's latest essay, Milos Among the Ruins, appears in the September 2017 issue of The New Criterion. David Price-Jones, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me.